Hi, hello, buongiorno. This is Out of the Clouds, a podcast at the crossroads between business and mindfulness. And I'm your host, Anne Militaller. Today, I am joined by Tess Privet. Tess is a yoga teacher who discovered yoga in 2000 and obtained her teacher training certificate back in 2004. She managed to do the last teacher training course provided by Carlo Patrian, a pioneer of yoga in Italy, shortly before he died. She is currently actually doing a second teacher training course just for fun with the teacher who initially introduced her to yoga, Beatrice Calcagno. In between these two, she has worked for Yoga Journal Italia as a columnist and writer. She earned a certification on yoga philosophy with the Oxford Institute of Hindu Studies and also studied with Professor Edwin Bryant, a world-renowned expert on the classical yogic text, which we will talk about, the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. Tess is a deep believer that by following the comprehensive set of asanas of Hatha Yoga, we find an instrument through which we can live each moment to the fullest, attaining a certain mastery of body and mind, an instrument also for equilibrium and and calm. I greatly enjoyed my conversation with Tess. We talked a lot about Yoji, her podcast, but we also delved into yoga philosophy and devotional practices and we talked a lot about meditation. (laughs) So without further ado, I give you my conversation with Tess Privet. Enjoy. Tess, welcome. It's so nice to meet you and to see your face. Yeah, for me too. Thank you so much for inviting me, really. So first, I want to let people know who are listening to us that we met in in quite an unusual setting because we met on the podcast fellowship. Yes, we did. Which is the program by Seth Godin that is meant to help people like us, (laughs) like the two of us, to come out with our podcast. Did you plan to join this or were you already midway through making your podcast when, when you joined with Seth? It had always been a dream of mine to do this podcast thing. I mean, it just sounded like such a great idea and I just had no idea where to start. And his um, this fellowship thing just kind of like popped up in my email and I was like, yes, this is the right time. Both you and I managed to get this thing up and running. So it obviously worked. It's really great. I'm very happy about that. Yeah, you got it up and running quite a little bit before me. So would you tell our listeners who you are and what you do and tell us a little bit about Yoji? Right. So my name's Tess Prevet. I'm British, although I live in Milan. I have a yoga podcast called Yoji, Yoga Oggi, and it is in Italian. I have my own yoga studio in Milan, right in the center of of Milan in a really like kind of little funky area called Isola. My yoga center has been open since 2008, I think. So it was not one of the first in Milan, but there were hardly any when I started out. Yeah, we've been around quite a while and that's me. So I think that one of the first things that sort of struck me about Yoji, Yoga Oji, is your wonderful accent. How do you oh, manage to you. deliver this podcast in Italian? You sound perfectly fluent to me, by the way, but I do love the British <laughs> accent, which you're going to have to treat us at some point here so other people can get a taste of. <laughs> oh, no, it's hysterical because I can't hear my own accent in Italian. When I speak in Italian, it sounds to me like I am mother tongue, completely fluent. And of course, that just is not the case. So I make terrible mistakes in my podcast. Grammar is a little bit all over the place, but you know, I've worked in Italy for so long. I just don't think I care anymore. (laughs) As long as as I get the message across, I'm happy. And I love the Italians because they really are so understanding. I think they're so happy to hear someone who's actually willing to really go for it linguistically that they kind of accept my mistakes and are are very sweet about it. And they also say that they like my British accent. So I guess that's a bit of a bonus, really. 
Oh yeah, I, I agree there. So I was wondering if you could tell me, because obviously I don't know it, a little bit about your yoga journey and also maybe tell me a little bit about where you're from and, and how you got to Milan. Right, yeah. So just to cut a long story short, I was actually born in South Africa, but I was, um, but I grew up in England. My mum is uh, a Londoner. I came to Italy, I think it was in 91, more or less. And, you know... Where did I go? Tuscany, like a typical Brit. Everyone goes to Tuscany. And there I met my husband, my husband-to-be. And he's from Milan. So, you know, I eventually, eventually got here. And my yoga journey, it's, it's kind of funny because I was actually introduced to yoga by my mother-in-law of all people. Can you believe that? They have a really bad name in, in Italy, the mother-in-laws, but she's absolutely wonderful. And um, she said to me one summer, look, I'm going to go and do this yoga retreat. Why don't you come? And I was like, oh, I don't even really know what this yoga thing is. And it's like seven hours of yoga a day. And I was like, well, I don't know. I'll give it a try. I went and I just totally fell in love with it. Just like, this is for me. And luckily, my teacher had a yoga studio really close to my house in Milan because the actual yoga retreat was in Tuscany. So I just ended up going like three or four times a week and it all spiraled from there, really. Yeah. So I'd love to know what kind of yoga you teach. And where you actually did your training and where did your heart go with yoga? Because I think a lot of people start, at least nowadays, or the way I started was through asana practice. Mm. Actually, yeah, I fell in love with yoga because of Shavasana. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get you on that. Yeah. I actually follow this meditation teacher called Sally Kempton and I saw her interview and a YouTube video and she said something very similar. And I was like, yes, great minds think alike. <laughs> this is where my my journey started, but I feel like you have a deep connection to the more intellectual, uh, philosophical and devotional side of yoga. And I think this is something that doesn't necessarily get talked about so openly in a lot of yoga studios. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. Like you, I also started with pure asana practice, postural yoga, which is a great thing. And I just think it really sparked off this kind of a spiral. You know, suddenly I began to to find a little bit of of connection with with my body and with my mind. And that was really what started things off for me. So I think postural yoga is a great gateway. I totally understand why and especially the devotional side of yoga, because, you know, people are not going to come into a center to learn about God or to learn about faith or the divine. You know, people generally don't come to yoga centers to do that. However, that is a huge part of it for me. That has become a very big part of it. What I found was reading up on it, that there are four different paths of yoga. And one is actually this bhakti. And I was practicing the first three, you know, doing my best in the most imperfect way, but I was really giving it my all. And the Bhakti side, the devotional side, I was like, this is not for me, you know. And also I grew up in a family where one of my grandmothers was a strict Catholic. Another one was almost an Orthodox Jew and my stepfather was a Muslim. So there was like this huge interplay of religions in my upbringing. But unfortunately, I say unfortunately, no one ever mentioned anything about spirituality or religions. It's almost as if they didn't want to step on each other's toes, you know, they didn't wow. want to. So I, I grew up in this kind of spiritual desert, really which is great on one side and not so great on the other. On one hand, it left me with a clean slate so that when I got to back to yoga, I was totally up for anything. I was like, I'll give it a go. Why not? What have I got to lose? You know, <laughs> whereas if perhaps my Catholic grandmother had insisted with her religion with me, I possibly would have had a, forgive me for saying this, a kind of negative version of the divine with which to battle against. You know, I had nothing to compare it with. Mm. 
So that was great. On the negative side, it, it was a desert. It was a spiritual desert. You know, it, it was kind of a shame. Maybe I would have got into it a little bit earlier on, but I didn't. So I thought, no, I'm going to, you know, I'm a yoga teacher. I'm trying to do these three paths of yoga. Would you mind telling our listeners a little bit about the first three parts of yoga? Sure, sure. So there's Raja Yoga, which is the meditative side of yoga. So, you know, I meditate every day. That's kind of the Patanjali side of things. Then we have Jnana Yoga, which is great for intellectuals. It's really about gaining knowledge of your real self, your your real true nature, which has nothing to do with, um, they say in Sanskrit, Prakriti. It has nothing to do with what we see and what we, we can actually feel. Uh, but it's something far more profound. So we're talking about our, our Atman, um, which is this, our true nature, our true self, which is untouchable. Uh, it's the pure part of ourselves, if you like. So Jnana Yoga is really great for those who are more intellectual and are into reading about the philosophy, etc., etc. Then we have Karma Yoga, which I really love, which is really about being fully active in the world, but without seeking rewards for what you do. So you're not looking for personal gain in what you're, you're just trying to live your dharma to the best of your ability. If I really want to sum it up in a very sort of succinct way. And then we have back to yoga, which is the devotional path. And I say back to yoga, you know, I'm not part of any tradition. And in fact, I think one of the things that I would like to do is to render people kind of independent. You know, you can have faith without necessarily being part of a, a, a traditional group of any kind. We can be at the Sangha is great, you know, having a group uh, where you, of like-minded people can be extremely powerful, but it's not a necessity. So these are basically the four different paths of yoga. And yes, yeah, so as a yoga teacher, it's like, right, I am going to try back to <laughs> <laughs> I am going to do this thing. And I did, and it's it's just become one of the paths that I love the most. Yeah, that's given me so much, really, really given mm. me a lot. Yeah, that's wonderful. I completely by chance, when I decided to do my yoga teacher training, I landed in a bhakti in <laughs> in a bhakti lineage. <laughs> did you? How did it go? Did it freak you out? No. So you see. I studied, I studied philosophy at university in Geneva. Wow, wonderful. And so I am the, the child of a, of a mother who is the biggest atheist you could ever meet in right. my life. And a father who, was, who had a very strong appeal for both devotion and mysticism. He was Protestant, oh. but then married his first wife. Sorry, he was Jewish. Right. My family is Jewish. I think he found a lot of solace in the mysticism of the the practice Jewish faith. So it was an interesting thing to see a father who always had like a very high spiritual aspirations that were absolutely quenched by both his wives. (laughs) Isn't that funny? Yeah. Yeah. So who were you most influenced by, do you think? I take after him a lot. I think the beauty for my brother and I is that my parents, very much like you, we were left rather untouched. They said we didn't have to get christened. They wanted to leave us free to make our choice. So I think that this spiritual aspiration always, there was always a pull in me. And so it was a huge surprise to discover this Bhakti path and to go into the cosmology and the philosophy and to find myself absolutely feeling at home. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Yes. Also, because it is so, it's fascinatingly random. I mean, I don't really believe in coincidences. Right. But it wasn't an advertised part of the course. It was called Awakening the Heart. So maybe this is the piece that hooked Mm. me in. That, the fact that it was in Ibiza and that the teacher can very, very highly recommended by someone I respected greatly. So Right. That's great. Yeah. It's so interesting, you know, because I think there's a lot of pushback because we do have this idea from our kind of Abrahamic upbringings of 
God being a kind of punishing type of God, which is very, very different. You know, they have an, the Sanskrit term for, for God in yoga is Ishvara. It's a kind of umbrella term, if you like, under which you will find Vishnu, Shiva, etc., etc. But there isn't really this element of judgment and punishment that we sometimes find in our religions of origin. So what happens is we come to yoga and like, you know, we've kind of pushed aside this God that for us has had negative connotations. And then all of a sudden someone starts talking about Ishvara and we're like, hold on a minute. Whoa. <laughs> oh, what is this? No, I don't want to go back there again. And it's a real shame because although there are similarities, Ishvara is actually very very different. I think that's why a book like the Bhagavad Gita was so enlightening for me. And also the Yoga Sutra, because what happens is in the Yoga Sutra, there's a Sanskrit expression, which is Ishta Devata, which really opened things up for me when it came to devotion, because Ishta Devata means your version of the divine. It's like saying, Ishvara Pranidana, which is devotion to the divine, but your Ishtadevata, your version of the divine. Now, okay, Patanjali was an orthodox Hindu, so in his day, that's going to be Vishnu or Shiva. Okay. But in my day, it just occurred to me that I could choose what I want my divine to be. And so I went through a very methodical way of experimenting with different versions of the divine until I found the one that worked for me. At the beginning, you know, being like a cynical Brit, I was like, no, whoa, you know, I'm not into this Vishnu Shiva business. It's, it's not for me. I'm just going to take nature. I'm going to try with nature. And so I did. It's interesting because I read somewhere about the um, philosopher Marcus Aurelius. Is that how you pronounce yes. it? Yeah, he was actually a Stoic. And I found out that he used to pray. He used to pray to the universe hmm. saying, give me the strength to be able to deal with the things I need to deal with. So for him, it wasn't about getting a nice new house or a nice breastplate or whatever it is that he used to get. It was just about getting the strength to be able to face the day. And his Ishtadevata was the universe. And in fact, that was something that I used too. I went from nature to universe and I tried loads of different things, you know, and that really helped. I think one one thing that religious people have on us, Anne, is that they were very lucky in that at least they have a method. Mm-hmm. We don't have a method. Or at least for me, that was part of my problem. I had no method. So I kind of like had to make it up as I went along a bit. (laughs) Um, But whilst fishing from the ancient texts kind of gave me structure and it gave me something to work towards on experimenting this this path. But also I love it because yoga is like, you know, hey guys, there is this path if you're into devotion. But you're not into devotion, that is fine, no problem. But we are predisposed to faith. It's like language. We are predisposed to it. In fact, in the Bhagavad Gita, and basically in 17.3, now I mentioned 17.3 not because I know all the slokas off by heart. I think as teachers, it's really useful if we say the chapter and the sloka, because then people don't have to remember everything I've said. All they need to do is go to the text and look up the number that I said to figure it out for themselves. So in 17.3, it says... Our faith conforms to our nature. Human nature is made of faith. A person is what his shraddha is. Shraddha is a a Sanskrit word for faith. And I think that's amazing also because we all have faith. It's just that for most of us, it's in money. You know, I just went to an Indian restaurant last night Mm. and they gave me this most amazing dish. And in exchange, I gave them a piece of plastic. My credit card, that is faith. That is faith. We're all working on faith. So the idea with back to yoga is to elevate that, is to elevate it into something that isn't material, if you see what I mean. I do. That sounds really beautiful. So 
for you right now, I think your connection would be to the, the wider universe after experimenting with nature, I guess. Okay, with my Ishta Devatas. Mm-hmm. Well, so yeah, I went through nature, I went through the universe, and then the universe was just kind of like too big. I just couldn't fathom. Um, and then it was also love, love of the people around me. That also worked really, really well for a while. And then I heard a quote by the philosopher Xenophanes, who said, if horses were to have a god, they would see God in the form of a horse. And oh, I was like... the most amazing quote. Isn't that amazing? And I was like, hello, of course. <laughs> so, so I was like, yeah, of course. Why don't I try it? Why don't I try seeing God in my form? It's just a pastry cutter in a certain form, but the substance is the same whether I call it nature or Vishnu or whatever. So I did. So I started like deliberately thinking of my Ishta Devata with a human form. Mm. And that's, that's still what I use. It works really well. And, but you know, Bhakti is really also about forming a relationship. So how can we form a relationship with something if that something doesn't have form? For me, it had to start with form. Interesting. So I was like, well, how if I could envisage what my Ishta Devata represents for me, what would he or she or it look like? And I just made a long list, you know, he would be this, that, etc. And I, this isn't very yogic. Huh? This is just, <laughs> it was sure. just my method. It was just my method of getting it down. And I was like, okay, so this is the form. This is what he or she or it would be for me. And then I started doing devotional things, like it says in the Bhagavad Gita. You know, you, we don't need a guru. The texts have it all in there. It's all in there. And Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, offer everything to me. Offer me everything. And so I started offering. I was like, what have I got to lose? I'm going to offer. I have my coffee in the morning. Mentally, I say, I am offering this to you. I have my shower in the morning. I am offering this to you. It's just continual, continual, continual. And it was very mechanical at first, you know, very mechanical. And I was like, God, what am I doing? I'm never going to tell anyone about this. We don't need to tell anyone, she says, speaking on your podcast. <laughs> uh, we don't need to. It's something that's incredibly intimate. You know, you don't need to tell anyone. Just give it a go and see what happens. And that's what I did. So I'd love to find out, when did you feel a change after it feeling mechanical? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I'm not, it's not just about a timeline. Where did you feel in your life or see a switch that something had moved yeah. thanks to that practice? It was when I was chopping an onion. <laughs> that, as, that, that's really as bizarre. Things go. Like as things go, you know. And I know that sounds bizarre, but I was literally in the kitchen chopping up an onion, saying my mantra, because that's another way that I offer is that during the day I just continually say my mantra, even when I remember imperfectly, obviously. And I was there like chopping away saying my mantra, and I just felt this huge sensation of complete, I can only describe it as joy. And I thought, my God, if I can feel that chopping an onion, maybe there's hope for me in the rest of my life. Yeah, so really this great sense of joy and also very small things like just suddenly becoming more patient with people, with my kids, just being more loving. Because for me, faith is highly connected to love Mm -hmm. And as with language as well, we're really predisposed to that. But I think we need to learn it. Like hatred, you know, you can learn to hate and you can learn to love. And back to yoga is really about learning to love. And you know what it's like when you're in love with someone? Everything is wonderful, even when it isn't. Mm -hmm. That's what it started to be like for me. You know, being able to feel joy, even when I have to pay the bills. Mm. Not that it's constant, unfortunately. <laughs> you know, it comes in dribs and drabs. It was, 
it was really wonderful because, you know, the texts say all the time that this continual search for pleasure through our senses is never going to bring us that happiness that we, we all seek. And despite that, I've spent the last 50 years <laughs> desperately <laughs> trying to do that. And it just doesn't work. Not that happiness through pleasure can not exist because it does. And I do feel incredibly happy when I'm eating my pizza or drinking my spritz. But of course, it's impermanent, short-lived, and it ain't going to fill that void. And I can't speak for other people, but I did live with a, a void. I said this recently in an interview with Edwin Bryant as well. You know, we call it a spiritual seeker. And a spiritual seeker means that we are looking for something. And if we're looking for something, it means that something's missing. Not being satisfied. Suffering, you know, that's what Buddha says as well, that at the end of the day, what happens is that we realize that we are suffering. In fact, the beginning of faith, I think, is realizing that we're not fully satisfied. But spiritual seeker means we're seeking something. Why are we seeking something? Because something is missing. We're not going to get it through pizza and spritz. I don't know. Do you drink spritz in Switzerland? I do. But um, yeah. So I asked you that question about the mechanic part of the practice because my journey into meditation, not yoga, started quite randomly after after an open class on holiday in Thailand. I started loving kindness meditation. Yep. And I had never heard of it. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know it was also called meta meditation. And I have no idea why this teacher said at the end of the class, imagine how powerful it would be if someone would do it every day. And in my head, I just went, challenge accepted. (laughs) (laughs) Don't ask me why. I was on holiday. Everything was fantastic. And then I started the next day infrared sauna. I don't know if you've ever tried that. It's really, really good for detoxing, which is what I was doing there. At the beginning, you just don't feel like it's that hot, but you have to stay for 30 minutes. Oh, right. Okay. Meditating. Doing it. I'm impressed. It's kind of a big cram. It's like a big cram meditation. You've you've come up with something here. Yes, I might have. Let me tell you, there's a lot of detoxing inside and outside going on. So I did that, and I had no teacher. I didn't feel like I needed to look it up because I'd been taught. Sure. And I have a very good memory. So I just hung on to the words that I'd heard Sujay pronounce, and then I just did the same thing over and over again. And I didn't question the method either. Sure. So the thing that's very related to yours is later on, I realized that I was much more equanimous. I was much more level-headed, definitely more patience, also patience towards myself. Right. Right. That's interesting, isn't it? And and all of this sort of was really, um, it didn't happen overnight at all. And I had no idea what would happen. I didn't actually do this with any result in mind. Right. To a certain extent, similarly to you, I was just offering the practice. Actually, I should say for anyone listening who doesn't know loving kindness, you repeat well wishes towards yourself and others. And in Sujay's practice, you start with yourself and he did it twice. Mm -hmm. He asked us to actually have a smile on our face doing it, Mm -hmm. which is very odd. It does change somehow the temperature or the mood in your body when you do that. I can believe that. Yeah. And then we did it towards someone we love, someone we didn't know, um, someone who we might have hurt. Right. And someone who might have hurt us. And then he put it back on to ourselves. He said we had to have a much bigger smile when you bring it back towards yourself. And you repeat, may you be well, may you be happy, may you be peaceful and may you feel love. And then you go towards a group and then you direct it in all directions to all living beings around the world. And do you still do that, Anne? I do. I I do. And I try to actually tap into it. I add it to other meditations when I don't feel like I want to do a half an hour of metta. So I try to do some every day. Even if you do another kind of meditation or breath work or pranayama, or even just a few minutes of, of sitting, if you pay attention to your breath and you breathe in, may I be well, breathe out, may I be happy, etc. So you know, I'm, I'm, I'm finishing my two-year meditation and mindfulness sure. certification with Tara Brock and Jack Cornfield. He invited a professor, Dr. Rick Hansen. Yeah, I've heard of who him. Who yeah. did a fantastic class on 
neuroplasticity. Right. And how important it is for us to embody experiences and for these to sort of take hold in our psyche to be able to tap into the feeling of. So the thing that gets interesting with your experience and with mine is that what I didn't realize is through the mechanical part, some days I was able to tap into a positive feeling. Some days I was able to raise towards the feelings or the wishes I was sending to people. Not every day. Some days it was boring and I was like, why am I doing this? And my head itches or... I want a biscuit. Yeah, exactly. But some days it did raise and I is in that moment of suddenly just embodying and feeling in that when it took root. So recently we were asked to work on a compassion meditation Mm -hmm. and to revisit the class. It's funny how whenever there's great teaching, you can go back to something two, three, four, 10, 15 thousands of times and you learn something new. At the end of that class, he noted that there are three basic needs that, you know, if they're not met, really triggered. And he talks about craving and grasping as sort of similar things, whether it's spiritual, physical, intellectual. Mm-hmm. And it was funny because he described them and suddenly something just clicked in clicked. my head. And he said the need for safety is obviously primordial, connection mm-hmm. and fulfillment. Mm, lovely. Yeah. And I think for me, the practices of yoga and the practices of meditation have actually enabled me to tap into my inner sense of safety, right? of connection towards the greater environment around me, even the people I don't know. So like you are offering your mantra, I started doing what Tara called stealth meta. <laughs> so when you're down the street and suddenly you cross someone's eyes or, and I just, I'm in the street and I'm just sending this random person my best wishes. I did it on planes. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, that's, that's I, incredible. Mm. So I wanted to tie it back to yours because these are two different methods that I think bring something similar. To the, it to the feels table. like an mm. integration. I don't think I ever quite feel so alone anymore because mm-hmm. of that practice. I Do you see what I mean? With a, yeah, I security? do. I do. I think that's really amazing. And I totally resonate. I totally get what you're saying because I feel the same. It was interesting what you were saying about these needs, you know, safety, connection, etc. And when I said that I was thinking about what my Ishta Devata would be for me, it had those things in it. It would be a cosmic force, if you like, a higher power or whatever, that would that would provide me with safety, etc. And what that gave me, having a form with which I could associate, for example, safety, but there was a huge long list, it also gave me something with, towards which I could be grateful. So that's another huge part of the devotional aspect for me. Of course. So when I feel I've been gifted this safety or whatever it is, I'm not only continually saying my mantra, but I'm also continually saying thank you. Mm. But apart from that, I found it very interesting what you were saying about neuroplasticity as well, and that sometimes we kind of have to kickstart things to get that going. So yeah, it will feel very mechanical at first. And I, I heard of this great practice, which I'm glad I spoke to you today because I'm going to start doing it again. The practice is that every time we're doing something that does bring pleasure, which could be like a cup of espresso or sitting on a bench under the, in a park, you know, feeling the sun on your face or whatever. And we have that kind of spark of, of joy or pleasure is to sit with it for at least 10 seconds. So what we tend to do is think, oh yeah, that feels nice on my skin. Let's check my Instagram account. Instead, what we do is we sit with that feeling for 10 seconds. We just stay there with it. And by forcing yourself to stay with it for 10 seconds, you're allowing those connections to form, the networks to perform. So we're back to neuroplasticity so that then the next time it will be ever more easy to slip in to that kind of joy lane, if you like. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's such a great thing to do because you can do it constantly during the day. You know, it really doesn't take very much work. Those are the kind of practices I like. So, yeah. It completely ties in with what Rick Hansen was talking about in that class. Absolutely. He was saying the longer you can stay with any felt sense of joy or love or positive feelings, and you can do this without even being 
in the moment, if you choose to try and cultivate this. There's something that Sally Kempton also does. She does a love meditation mm-hmm. on glow, for example, which is incredibly similar to what Rick Hansen had tried us. The idea is to let the feeling pervade your body and hang on to that and feel it. Where is it in your body? And the longer you do that, the more you'll be able to connect to it. But he also said something interesting, which I think why these practices are so important. He offered that as a survival mechanism. We tend to remember the negative experiences more than the positive. Mm -hmm. We're Velcro for the bad, Teflon for the good. Through these positive devotional or other means to enhance one's good bias, we actually just become more balanced simply. Yeah. We yeah. just revert back to more even playing. So I was wondering, you did mention to me that during the lockdown in, in Milan, you offered a Japa meditation on a daily basis for, for groups every morning. Yeah, I offered a Japa meditation and um, Japa meditation is kind of yogic meditation. And it's funny because mindfulness and metta, vipassana, really got a big foothold in even the yogic world. And I remember when I started doing yoga and I became very interested in meditation and I I did research on it, all I was getting was vipassana and metta and I did a lot of that and it it was great. Japa is more yogic. It's what kind of like what is described in... um, Patanjali's Yoga Sutra and in, in, mm-hmm. the, in the Bhagavad Gita. So there's an incredibly rich tradition of meditation offered through the canonical yoga texts, which I don't know why they're not really used that much. Not that there's a, a right or a wrong, absolutely. And Japa meditation is basically the repetition of your mantra very, very slightly sotto voce. And help uh, me yes. <laughs> Thanks, you've just managed to do it in two different languages. Done the right one, <laughs> not the right one. Yeah, fantastic. Just with a, uh, with a low voice. Yeah, kind of almost whispering. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so what I would do is I would do the japa, and then the people who were with me on Zoom would follow me with that. Very very simply. Now, basically, I think meditation can be split into two parts. So there's one kind of open awareness meditation, which is very vipassana and mindfulness, whereas yogic meditation is more closed focus meditation. So we're really talking about one pointedness. And that is what japa is. Whereas with mindfulness, for example, whatever emotions or whatever kind of like comes into your mind, you recognize that and then you allow that to to pass through. Whereas we're not doing this open awareness thing. We're really, really trying to concentrate on one specific point. But saying that, that's really quite an advanced, (laughs) it's quite an advanced practice. And um, my japa, it's also for me, saguna meditation, which is, um, I do have a devotional aspect to it as well. So when Mm. I say my mantra, I really try and bring my attention to the area around the heart. I will Mm. close my eyes. I will, you know, I have this sams or this image of my ishta devata and I will try and bring that to mind. So for for now, mine's kind of three-pointed instead of one-pointed, but I will get there slowly. So yeah, so I was just doing, it's, it's very simple. You just keep saying this mantra and bringing your mind back to the mantra, back to the mantra continually. And the mantra is great because it's something that's been used for thousands of years to gain il risveglio, um, awakening. So it's kind of like it's turbocharged. That's how I think of it. It's got a really good reputation of getting people to this point. So I'm going to use it. Um, <laughs> Would you tell us the mantra? Uh, right. I actually have Two, the one that I did with my students was Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya, which means I I pay homage to to Krishna. But I also really like the Hare Krishna mantra as well, which is Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Hare Hare Rama Rama. 
said a little bit slowly and a little bit more lovingly. But I don't tend to use that one with my students because I think it's got a bit of a bad name. You know, I kind of think of the musical hair and I think, oh my God, people are going to think I'm a total hippie freak. So I tend to refer the other one with my students. But these are the ones that I, I generally use and I love them. And also during the day. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about your podcast. Yeah. Because, so first of all, you have kept me seriously entertained. I've really, really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you so much. That's so sweet. Yeah, that's kind of my mission. That's kind of like my dharma is to to make the antique canonical texts really integrate with our everyday lives. What I want to do is I don't want to wisdom whack people. You know, I want people, yeah, to be entertained, to insert stories from my everyday life and how the slokas or the sutras help me with that, you know, and they really can resonate with our everyday lives. So I guess my dharma is to make them user-friendly, you know. I would love for you to tell us shortly one of the stories that you might have recorded in the last few months, but in English, because a lot of my listeners don't speak Italian. (laughs) So they're not going to be able to connect to Yoji so I know, that's so a shame. Oh my God, that's a, a good question because I tend to record them and then I'm like, okay, I've done. Okay, so talking about meditation, I've been doing the last couple on meditation and my daughter, she went through this phase, it was really funny, where one day she walked in and she had drawn on her cheek with a felt-tip pen a circle. And so I say to her, you know, what is that on your face? And she says to me, oh, yes, yes, yes. Because I needed to remind you that we have to take six euros to school tomorrow. I was like, (laughs) hello? And she was like, yeah, yeah, because I know if I draw something on my face that when you see me, you will ask me what it is that... what it is. And that will help me. That will help me to remember. And I thought that's, that's kind of genius, really. But unfortunately, not many of us can walk around with big circles on our faces. Or you could, I guess, if you really wanted to. We have a hard time remembering everything. You know, it's hard. It's hard for my daughter. It's hard for me. Mm. So what we can do to help us in Japa meditation is to concentrate to be aware, to be, to have your attention fixed on one thing at a time so that recalling things, for example, gets much easier. Mm. And then I tied that in with Alzheimer's as well, because I heard that when old people suffer from Alzheimer's, what happens is they forget their past. And when you forget your past, you forget who you are. You lose your sense of identity. And it's funny because we're all very focused on staying with the present. Your past is just as important. And unfortunately, your memories are only as sharp as the message was clear the first time you heard it. So if you are distracted as you go about during your day, you're losing this stuff. It's not going to be implanted so firmly in your mind, which is why I really like yogic meditation, because it's about refining your ability to concentrate. And for us today, well, I don't know about you, but for me, in where I'm living, it's just like the whole world is intent on getting me distracted. So that's another reason why I really love Japa meditation. So that was my way of introducing. It's very clear. It sells the point, I think, very well. Thank you. I was on FaceTime last night with my friend and he, I could see the reflection of his TV in his glasses. Sure. And he's watching football or something else. Okay. And then he was getting messages from work and only like a half an hour later, I started also getting messages from work and it was impossible to actually have a conversation even though we were on FaceTime because I could see his eyes were darting no, all over the place. No, and no. I stopped talking. It's like, I'm going to give you a minute. <laughs> and it's not his fault. It's not even, well, I mean, next time I'll ask if he can turn off the TV because that's already just like one Hello. distraction. Personally, have a good, I know how to concentrate. It's part of my, my superpower is that I can wow, do intense work amazing. for yeah. a very long period of time. You are very lucky. But I also have taken a lot of steps 
to dramatically reduce the level of interruption. My phone is 90% of the time is on silent mode. You can't. Me too. Drives my friends crazy. Yeah. You basically have to text me in order to call me. Yeah. That's kind of the way forward. I totally get you there. Yeah. But the reason is I try to do deep work throughout my day, regardless whether it's for my studies, uh, whether it's for writing, whether it's for client work. So I kind of have to streamline somehow because otherwise I'm just bombarded and I've stopped all of the notifications on my computer. Great. Anyways, it's uh, one of the concepts that I thought was the most fascinating when I did my teacher training last year came from the periods of contemplation that we would have at the end of each morning's sessions. Mm. We had some very physical practices in the morning, but always themed beautifully by our teacher, Suzanne Faith. And she always had, you know, a point she was getting us to. And well, there's two that really stuck with me. Thinking about what obstacles we put in our own way. Mm-hmm. And the second one was the integration or integrity, that they were both terms that I don't normally use in daily life. But integration sort of felt really important because I feel like we're very fragmented, you know, like our attention. It's like I have multiple screens, multiple devices, multiple things going on. And right now, I think that what I'm doing is I'm trying to pull myself together. I'm trying to film methods so that I can be one yeah. whole unit, ideally more or less present. And that's something I Not find. Easy. Yeah. And I can see it in other people, particularly now. I was on a, on a video call with one of my clients and I could feel she already has a little bit of um, attention deficit and it was very hard to hold her present in, okay. in that moment. I reckon she would benefit a lot from Japa meditation. Yeah. Yeah. Because she would probably, you know, with open awareness and open awareness type method, she would probably just get swept away. And one point of meditation doesn't have to be with a mantra. I mean, you know, it can be with a picture. It can be with a once upon a time. I, I think this is a bit 1970s, but it was a, a flame of a candle. You know, Patanjali says in his yoga sutra, you know, I he's so cool. I love Patanjali because he's so kind of like down to earth. He doesn't say no. You have to think of your Ishvara. You have to think of your Ishtadevata. You have to think of mantra. You know, he says you're a Lambana, which is Sanskrit for um, for your object of meditation, can be anything. That's what he says. You can be anything you like. You know, I mean, how I love that. It's so cool. But as Richard Davidson said, this neurologist, he's an expert on concentration. And he said, uh, this is another thing I mentioned in my podcast. And, you know, he's always getting this question, what practice can I do that will help me concentrate? You know, what is the best one? And he said, the best practice is the practice you do. Mm. just bloody do it you know as Patanjali says every day every day that's a a little island of peace for me I can't do without that it's uh it's super important so is there anything that you'd like to add about practice teaching or anything that you feel would be helpful yeah actually talking about meditation because what I find is that um, two things actually if I may so the great thing about the canonical texts is you never finish reading them. And so I'm reading them and I'm reading and new things come up every day. Now, I don't know if this is true for most yoga teachers, but I have to confess it's definitely true for me. With the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, I tend to concentrate on the first two chapters. And the third one, which is on like mystical powers, are like mm, cynical Brit comes out again. Like, you know, okay, not going to delve in there. Don't want to know what that's all about. And so I was just flicking through it the other day and I got to 312 and and he talks about one pointedness and he says that it just means that when one image of the mind is immediately replaced by exactly the same identical image again and again and again, a bit like the reel of a film, but the image is identical. And why is this important? Because when we think of Chittavriti Niroda, we think of cessation of thought, that it has to completely come to stillness. But actually that is rhetorical. And I hadn't realized that. And that's so important. It doesn't mean that our thoughts have to be completely still because the nature of our mind is to move. So even when we're in a state of samadhi, which is kind of like the yogic nirvana, what happens is it's not actually still. It just means that the image, there is still movement, but the image is exactly the same. 
we're coming back to that one. And why is that important? I think that's important because otherwise we may feel I'm not doing meditation right. I could not agree with you more. My understanding of that sutra was it was to try and stop the the vrittis, which is the, the movements. I would say the best analogy is to compare it to the waves of the ocean, right? And that the state that Patanjali is trying to get us to is to find the depths where there's less movement. And that doesn't mean that there's no waves at the surface. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, yeah, it's a great analogy. Yeah, so it's not complete stoppage. Also, that's important for me because I've always thought, oh my God, I've got to like stop my mind. You know, my mind is going to be stopped when I'm dead. That is not very appealing. So I really like that. One of the commentators, Ramananda Sarasvati, points out that is rhetorical. There is, there's still going to be movement. It's just one pointed, one same image over and over again. So that was one thing. And then just, uh, have you ever heard of this saying, the mind produces thoughts the same way that mouth produces saliva? Ah, that's interesting. I've not Because when you consider it like this, like it is its nature. That's wonderful. Yeah, I really like that. I'm going to use that with my students. Uh, (laughs) Thank you, Anne. I like that because as you say, it's its nature. You know, the other thing about the Bhagavad Gita and coming back to what we were talking about before when you said, when did things become less mechanical? When did you really, really Mm. start to to feel? There's this one part of... um, in the Bhagavad Gita, and I basically he's saying, okay, so how can we be devotional? So we offer things to our version of the divine. And one of the things that he said, which I never got, Krishna says, offer not only flowers, everything you eat, all the actions you make, offer me even your suffering. And I never got that. I never got that until recently. I was in Tuscany in the car with my daughter and I really suffer from car sickness. I was feeling, I'm like in the front of the car and I'm like feeling really, really sick. And all of a sudden from behind me pipes up this little voice and it says, mom, I'm feeling really car sick. Do you mind if we swap places? And I'm like, oh, my my first instinct was, (laughs) oh my God, I'm going to vomit. And she's asking me to go on the back seat. Thanks very bloody much. But immediately after that, I remembered, offer your suffering. Offer your, so I did. I offered it up. I am exchanging this seat and my offering goes to you. And what I felt was the most intense sensation. I, I can only describe it as love. And that for me was hugely important for me because I suddenly realized, I thought, oh my God, if I, by offering up my suffering, if I can tap into this love feeling, even when I'm literally, not only mentally, but physically feeling sick, physically suffering, and I can tap into that, this is why he says, offer your suffering to me, because it can be an instrument. It's not our enemy. Yeah, that kind of blew my mind a little bit. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to do it again since, but I've done it once, so I know it's doable. Yeah, that gave me a lot of hope. So That's beautiful. Yeah, I think my approach coming from the mindfulness practices that I'm so heavily studying, I suffer from rheumatoid arthritis and I'm mostly pain-free through many tricks, especially diet. But when I do feel pain, I think it's about just being with it, first of all, just not suppressing it, Mm. trying to listen to my body, actually, maybe trying to speak to me. And then, yeah, trying to send some love that way. And yeah, that's interesting. That's another another take on it. She's gorgeous too. Thank you so much for your time today. No, thanks to this you. Was, Anne. This has it's... been so much fun. May I ask you two or three extra quick fire questions? Yes, of course. What is your favorite word? Right, that's interesting because it's not one that would probably pop into one's mind. But you know, with the podcast thing, what I did is I got my students. I said, look, if anyone would like to just give me a little bit of an audio review that I can put on my podcast. So my students would basically say, oh yeah, I like going to test because of this and because of that. And one of my students used a word, which I just think is, it was such a compliment. She said in Italian, it is 
disinteressato, which is disinterested. And I know that sounds kind of like negative. It sounds like uninterested, but it's actually very, very different. It's not having any vested interest. And that for me is what karma yoga is. And that is why it was such a beautiful thing to say, because that is what I'm trying to do. It was such a compliment. Yeah. I feel like the French word yeah. has much more weight. Ah. You, we say désintéressé. So when you offer something in a way désintéressé, it's without self-interest. Exactly. Thank you. Yeah. The French term resonates. For me, the English word doesn't. Doesn't. It doesn't, it doesn't does it? It doesn't hold that meaning. That weight. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that is karma yoga. What sound or noise do you love? Oh, that's funny. Um, I really love hearing the sound of the front door as it opens when my teenage daughters come back from a night out on the town. That is has to be my favorite <laughs> noise, especially if she comes back punctually when I asked her to. That's a, that's a great noise, yeah. A favorite curse word? It can be in Italian if you want. <laughs> Oh, mama. <laughs> oh, dear. Let me think about that. Okay. I know. Cazzo is a great word. What can I say? It's an Italian word. It's an Italian curse word. I'm sure you know it. It's yeah, a good one. It does it. It does it for me. And then the last thing I would ask is, what would you say to your younger self? Send yourself a message. Not to give so much weight to fear, I think, would probably be a a big one because, um, you know, before you were talking about obstacles and for me, fear is, is a, a huge obstacle. So giving it just to give fear the right weight, it's like a, um, an overprotective grandmother saying, it's okay, you know, just please don't do this. Please don't do this because it's bad for you. I can understand it. it comes from a place of wanting to protect, but it doesn't help me on my evolutionary path. So yeah, I guess it would be don't, don't take your fears quite so seriously. Mm. Not yourself, really. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's what, what it would be. Thank you. And I forgot one. What brings you happiness? What just pops into my mind now is my, my kids. Um, and I love it because they really make fun of me. You know, I'm all into this kind of like, okay, after dinner, I'm going to, I'm going, I'm going to read a poem and their eyes like roll up towards the ceiling. And they really, we say in English, they really take the mick out of me. And I don't know, that just brings me so much joy. And also physically, like I'll be lying on the sofa and then one of my daughters will lie on top of me and then the other one will lie on top of me and then my husband will come and lie on top of her. And, so, and even though and even though I can't actually breathe, there's something so kind of like loving about that. And my friends as well bring me so much happiness, really. So Thank you so much. I really appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Anne, for having me on. It's, it's I can't believe it's a fun conversation. It, it's been really good. And I it's a bit embarrassing how pleasurable it is to talk about oneself all the time. <laughs> it's not very yogic, is it? But um, no, it's been really fun. Thank you so much. You're for welcome. Inviting me. So would you mind telling our listeners where they can find you online at the moment? So your studio for those who might be in the Milan area is called Lotus Pocus. Um, my website is lotuspocus.com. I do actually give one yoga class in English, which is available once a week on Zoom. And what I tend to do is the first five minutes, I will dedicate it to something that has to do with the ancient yogic text, but I try and make it fun and, and like tie it into my everyday life. And then I just do a hatha practice. So if anyone would like to join, it would, that would be great. You can contact me. My email is tess at lotuspocus.com. So they'd be very welcome. That's great. And you're on Instagram as well, uh, lotuspocus. I, yeah, lotuspocus underscore milano. Okay, I'll put all of that in the show notes as well as some references of the sutras we've talked about and some of the various teachers we mention in case anybody feels excited about our conversation as we are. Who knows? Who knows? Cross fingers. No, that would be great. Thank you. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. Thanks and hope to see you soon. Hope to see you in Milan one of these days. I hope so too. 
Thanks so much to Tess for joining me today. Links to connect with her as well as details from our conversation are all in the show notes. So that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening and I hope you'll join us again next time. Our theme music is by Connor Heffernan. Artwork by the wonderful Brian Ponto. Special thanks to Joel North for sound editing. And you can soon find all of my episodes and more about my project at anvmulitala.com. Actually, you can check that out in the show notes if you don't know how to spell my name. If you can, rate and review the show on iTunes. It helps other people find it and we appreciate it very much. Until next time, be well, be safe. Thank you.